we really want to do with your healthcare what Google did with your information. Make it accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of everybody comprehensively. Everything from your mental health one day to your long-term disease management, all done by artificial intelligence, augmented by human beings. I think healthcare is something that we can make a utility for everybody, just like tap water. You turn it on, it's there. Imagine if there was someone who could revolutionise the current painstaking process of visiting your GP. If it was possible to see a GP when you, the patient, wanted, and even on the same day. In the UK, it currently takes, on average, 13 days to get a standard appointment. And today, I'm talking to the very doctor who's found a way to remedy this problem. Dr Ali Parsa founded Babylon Health, a virtual GP service that was created with a single purpose, to put an accessible and affordable health service in the hands of every person on earth. Born in Iran, Parsa fled to England after the revolution in 1982, at just 16 years old and was already showing impressive smarts and ingenuity. He completed A-levels in just nine months despite having to learn English at the same time, and he then gained a scholarship to study at UCL studying civil engineering before getting a PhD in engineering physics, hence the doctorate. His success to date is staggering, and Babylon is his third roll of the dice, so get ready for the mind-blowing smarts and experience of one of the world's greatest serial entrepreneurs. So without further ado, here's the episode recorded live at Babylon's office. Welcome to our guest, Dr. Ali Parsa, here in uh, South Kensington on lovely Sloan Avenue at Babylon Health HQ. And to start our interview today, we're going to do a quick fire round. Is that okay with you, Dr. Parsa? That would be lovely. And we missed the opportunity for you to say hello to our guests, of course. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening, depending on whenever you're listening, but hi. So just very quickly with our quick fire round, uh, this is just to get a little insight into your triggers. So... Let's start off with a really obvious one. Private medical or NHS? NHS. Finance or healthcare? Healthcare. You're trapped on a desert island and you can bring three things and they're not your kids. Don't worry. They are what? That's a tough one. I guess I'm a very practical person. So you start with an encyclopedia of the entire human knowledge in a book on how to survive the wild. Uh, We have so much knowledge that we lost through centuries. I'm sure somebody's gathered that that book would be very helpful. Outside that, I guess a wonderful tent, so you are sheltered, and the biggest box of matches or unlimited source of fire making possible. It's the most valuable tool humanity discovered in the wild. Do you think that's the most practical set of answers we've had to the question so far? So you're probably the only one who's going to survive, which is good. But you might bump into uh, other people on the same island who just brought three books and stuff, so maybe you can swap with them. What are the apps you're using on your phone most right now? I don't know. I guess it's Spotify, BBC News, The Economist, Uber. Okay, The Guardian or The Telegraph? Ooh, that's a tough one. Neither. Probably the FT. But yeah. if I have to go with one of the two, The Social of The Guardian, The Economics of The Telegraph. Okay, very fair. And who's the most inspirational person in the world to you? I'm not a buyer of the most anything. So no. I just think that we all have our faults and we all have our advantages. But anybody who... Dreams really big, but stay human and preaches humanity as opposed to being just macho. But growing up, did you did you have some people that you looked up to? You were like, yeah, that's you know, that's the guy, that's the woman. As a very young person, I was a socialist, so you had all your left wing icons, and then as you grew older, you became 
I, I was very much into science, so it was the scientists. So it changes all yeah. the time. Okay, well, we'll just say Sorry Che Guevara, for being shall we? Yeah. <laughs> che Guevara was there at the time, yeah. Yeah, okay, so Che Guevara's being as one, a, fair as, enough. As um, a young kid, like, well, who was it? Was it Churchill who said, if you're young and uh, you're not on the left, you have no heart, and if you're old and you're not on the right, you have no brain? And I'm sure, and that's an exaggeration, but there is, there is a bit about heart and mind mm. that, that needs to come together at different stages of your life. Yeah, very true. I guess... Similar-ish, but not quite so. Is there an entrepreneur that you look up to? Is there someone that you think is, you know... That's really... a lot easier. And, yeah. and I think people like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk are easy answers, but not because they're very successful, but because they have dreamt incredibly big in what they do, sending a spaceship up and bringing it down exactly to the same way. These are big dreams. And they stick with it when everybody else thought it's impossible to do. And they executed on it because it wasn't an impossible dream. It was just a very, very hard dream that was executable. So entrepreneurs like that are people I look up to. And is there someone that uh, you can say is the uh, your least liked person on the planet, even if it's Donald Trump? Uh, listen, it's easy to say Donald Trump, but I think Trump represents... And I don't want to, I go to the US a lot, so I don't want to kind of get no. myself into trouble. <laughs> yeah, let's avoid but, that. <laughs> but I think is this, is that representation of a populist leader who irresponsibly can endanger the lives of many. And I think we unfortunately have a lot of them right now. And I dislike them all because, because it's, it's for personal gain or narrow sect gain. It plays with the harmony of a society. And finally, what do you prefer being, a CEO, a founder or a doctor? Oh, an easy one. It's always a founder. I think a founder is a very creative thing. It's the zero to one part, which is, in my view, the hardest and the most enjoyable part. I think being a founder is like being an artist. It's a process of creativity, which is the biggest gift of them all for somebody to be engaged in. I love that. Awesome. Fantastic answer. Thank you for that. And I'm sure lots of our listeners will agree. So from around to where we are today, I've touched on it slightly in our introduction, but you've got five minutes to craft the story of Dr. Ali Parsa as you'd like our listeners to know. So technically, you could say anything and we'll call you out on it if it's not true. So you can't say that you did send the Falcon 9 to the moon, but you are more than welcome to craft your own story and let us know how you think of your story, where you got to Babylon Health. No, that's a difficult one. I, I guess I should have prepared for that. But listen, it's not that difficult to tell your own story. I, I was incredibly lucky to grow up in a middle class Iran pre-Iranian pre revolution when it was one of the richest middle classes in the world. So I had a very blessful youth with the world's most wonderful parents. and, and set up in large. No, I grew up by the Caspian Sea. I was born in Tehran. I had stayed in Tehran until I was... 11, 12, and then I moved to the Caspian Sea because my parents were there. So I was a beach bum all my teenage years, which was a wonderful thing to be. And then the Iranian Revolution happened. I got involved with the wrong political groups uh, and I had to leave the country as a refugee, uh, partly because of that, partly because the universities were closed and I was always into my studies. Uh, and so I, was that with I, your parents or did they stay? No, I, I left on my own. Okay. I was 15, 16, 15 when I left home and 16 when I got into UK. It was a long journey. And uh, I was uh, your person who arrived here, didn't speak a word in English. By the time I arrived, I had to do my 
O-levels or GCSEs and A-levels uh, at the time, but I was too old. I was 16. I didn't speak any language. I had to learn English. So I locked myself in a room for about two years, 18 months, and I did my own O-levels at the time, passed them and then did my A-levels and passed them. I got an offer into, uh, I think it was both Cambridge and UCL, and I had no idea uh, that uh, Cambridge is such a brilliant university, really, because I thought it's a smaller town versus a big city. Uh, so I went to UCL, which was a great decision. I loved UCL. And then I got involved heavily in the student politics. I became the chair of UCL Student Union eventually, then the chair of the University of London Union. Then I was the first non-English-born person who got onto the national executive of the National Union of Students, which I stayed for a while. And then I got involved with the International Union of Students, and that got me a bit traveling across the globe where I met my wife, which was the biggest gift I received out of that, because we've been now together for almost 30 years. But then my parents quite rightly said, enough is enough. And I decided to become a full-timer at the International Union of Students. So just to go back to my studies. So I started a PhD. I didn't have any money to pay for that PhD. So it was in physics that university very kindly offered me the department's one scholarship, which I took. But I had to work. I built a business. I got incredibly lucky, did very well. It won the award for the best young business in UK. And like every business that wins an award, uh, you kind of sell it because it, it kind of was doing better than the rest of the... It, was, it sounded better than it was doing. We sold it and I saw the... Uh, what was that business called? It was called Victoria and Gilan. And it was trying to sell the media space the media couldn't sell at the time. And it used to do a huge amount of event for newspapers using readers' offers, basically. How old were you at this point, sorry? I was 22, 23, 24. So 23, 24, you had your first exit. So I was 29 by the time I had the exit. I started the business when I was 24, when I started my PhD. I was 28, 29 when I had the the exit. Then I saw the investment bankers who sold the business for me did actually phenomenally well per hours they sold it, that they were also well-dressed with these beautiful suits. So I said, you know what, maybe I should become an investment banker, which I did. Uh, And I was an investment banker for a number of years. I started at Credit Suisse, then went to Merrill Lynch, then ended up at Goldman Sachs. And I always really didn't like the work, right? There is something not that creative about it. I wasn't very good at it because my heart wasn't at it. Somehow, however, because I was an entrepreneur, I always got on with the entrepreneurs who were our clients really well. So people mistook that about me being half decent in my job. But reality, I wasn't, I just couldn't bear the idea of everything we did. So when my first child was born, I had my uh, midlife crisis with investment banking. I kind of took two weeks off, then went back and saw my boss, was a guy called Scott Kapnick, who used to run Goldman in Europe at the time. And I, I, I had no idea what I was going to do. I built a business. I got lucky again. It did well. And then I had a series of knee surgeries, and uh, I was stuck in what was one of London's top private hospitals. And I thought, gee, if if this is the best the private sector can do, surely I can build better hospitals than that. So in a moment of madness, I decided to build a chain of hospitals. 
which we did. As you do. As you do. And uh, which which seemed like a great idea. I thought healthcare is, is a big part of our lives. But I actually entered it the wrong way, and I explained this in a minute. So we built a chain of hospital. Again, we got incredibly lucky. We went from nothing to a few thousand employees, a few hundred million in revenue. We sold it. We took it public. And the reason I sold out and got out, one was because I lost control. But secondly, was because I understood that the vast majority of the healthcare problem people have have very little to do with hospitals. It's almost everything that goes behind it and everything that goes after it, and yet we do that in the most arcane way possible. And we thought, how can you make most of the healthcare most people need highly accessible and affordable and put it in the hands of every human being on earth? How can you do with healthcare what Google did with information? And that's, I guess, where Babylon came from. So in your own words, what is Babylon? And is it precisely now on, it, on the same journey as when you started it, the way that you as the founder perceived it? Has it followed the same kind of steps or have you had to meander a different way to achieve the same goal? Look, in Middle East, uh, an Israeli friend of mine once told me, Middle East, we say, if you want God to laugh, you give him your two-year plan. And that is so true. I mean, any entrepreneur, any person who tells you, I planned it that way and I worked out that way, it's just complete nonsense. The world is so complex. Uh, You know, the Lawrence paper on when a butterfly claps its wing in uh, Brazil, there will be a hurricane in Texas. Of course, the end of that paper's title was, or they may not be, right? Yeah. I mean, you just you just have no idea how the world plans out. So when we set up Babylon, though, the principle was the same that it is today. How do you make healthcare accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of every human being on earth? And accessible is almost easy, because if I can put most of the healthcare most people need on devices most of them already have, their mobiles in their hands, that's highly accessible. The question becomes, how do you make healthcare affordable? There's no accessibility without affordability. And to make healthcare affordable, I guess what I learned in my previous company, Circle, is that all costs in healthcare sits in two very big buckets, or most of the big costs. One is people. Two-thirds of all the money we spend in the National Health Service goes into salaries. 70% of what I spend in Circle went into salaries, right? There is no solution unless you figure that part out because you can deal with everything else and by the time you've done that, inflation would have eaten that price up. And the second is timing. By the time most diseases show their symptom, a $10 problem has become a $100, $1,000 solution. So everything almost we do in Babylon is to try and figure out how do you deal with this issue of affordability? So we create a law of artificial intelligence, for instance, to augment what a human being can do. So it's say can do a lot, lot more than what they could do, or to predict your health so we can capture you much faster. Almost everything else is secondary. Almost everything else is so that we can make it very accessible on your mobile phone for you. But frankly, a doctor behind a mobile phone costs exactly the same as a doctor under screen. And that's an easy problem to solve. I mean, that's basically requires FaceTime and Skype and a scheduling. Uh, well, speaking about it as a company owner, isn't that in itself a really good challenge to solve because you're stopping someone just going to the GP because they feel like they should, which can take hours out of a working day, depending obviously where they were. If you're the employer, that's pretty annoying because they come back, they're like, oh, I'm fine. And you wish that they'd have used something like Babylon Health instead. And then if they say you should go to a GP, at least you then know that when they're going, it's sensible. On the other side, if you're a salaried worker being paid by the hour and you have to take that time off, that's a real problem for you. 
No, you're absolutely right. Look, that is that is an important problem. The problem of accessibility is an important problem to solve. But as I said, in my view, there's no accessibility without affordability. If Google figured out how to deliver a book in a library to you so you don't have to go to the library, that would have been valuable, but not as valuable as making it for free available on your devices wherever you are Mm -hmm. by digitizing the entire information of the world, which was their mission at the time. I, I think you need to go to the root cause of any problem you're trying to solve rather than solve part of that problem because why do that? Life is too short. You might as well just deal with the big problem. Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish, whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big HQ. We take care of the whole process from start to finish, and our service is completely free. Check us out on contour.space. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So you touched on this just earlier, but a different way of saying it is uh, no business plan survives first contact with investors. So what was your first pitch to investors? Do you actually remember what it was and how it was positioned? Actually, I was incredibly lucky because in my previous life, I have made uh, good gains from the circle. Yeah, yeah. And, and previous to that also. Mm. So I, the day that it was announced I'm leaving circle, I had... 
three good friends uh, from different parts who who contacted three good friends and two or three who I didn't know that well, who contacted and said, look, almost whatever else it is that you do next, we'll back it. Uh, just let me know why it is. So a few months later, when I was ready to tell people what we are doing, I left Circle to build Babylon, so I knew exactly what I'm doing. So I called those three or four up, and one of them, who's a phenomenal, phenomenal investor and friend, said that, look, whatever it is you need, we'll, we'll cover it. And, and they did. They stayed true to it. It took no time. It was very simple. You were able to so, name that investor? Was it an angel? Was it a fund? No, it's, it's an existing investor to us. Uh, it's, a, it's part of our investor base today. And he's been phenomenally good. I wouldn't name a point him out now, just just so not to trouble him with other people like chasing him. But he's. Uh, but if he's listening, he knows who he is. He knows exactly who he is. He's a wonderful, wonderful friend too. And this issue on investors is really important because remember, God forbid, I can divorce my wife if necessary. I can never divorce my investors. Once they're in, they're in. So it's, it's for the life of that company that you're getting together. So choosing your investors is as important as choosing your partner in life. It's all about sharing the values that you have, the objectives that you have. If their objective is just to make money out of you, that is going to fall apart very quickly because sooner or later you're going to hit problems and you're not going to be able to agree on the solution. If your objectives is that, look, we're going to get together to make healthcare accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of every human being on earth. And because we're solving this huge problem, we're going to get rewarded in a huge way and therefore we're all going to do really well out of it. That is the purpose. The first purpose is the purpose. Then you will go through thin and thick together. And I think it's really important to select your investors. I feel like that is potentially uh, an insight that you've come to by the time you're on your third company. And presumably, like any entrepreneur, you have to learn that lesson through a series of mistakes. So it's almost like a privilege of the experienced entrepreneur to say, you pick your investors because they share your mission. And actually, the reality when you're starting up the first time is often... You pick your investors because you're bloody lucky enough anyone will back you full stop. So we'll come back to the Babylon story, but can you rewind back to your first company and if you still believe that then or if some of these lessons and insights have come from an experience in Victoria and Gillen? No, look, my first company, nobody at the time invested in anything, right? So my first company was, when was it, 19... 19- 90 that we started it. There wasn't really an angel community or a VC community even in UK. It was a small business. We, our first idea was to set up a huge party for the students in a Greek island. We took every accommodation in a Greek island. We took a lot of airplane seats. And then the day we launched our publicity, £7,000 worth of posters that was supposed to go across, that went into every university in the country to get a huge student bash going that summer, George Bush Sr. announced the first Gulf War against Iraq, and no parent were going to let their kids to go on any party. Now, that war took a very short period of time, but at the time, it just even bust, basically. So we then had no choice but to figure out, after a week of licking our wounds, what do we do, right? We own our £7,000 of money, which was given to us by Prince's Trust at the time. And basically, one of the newspapers that was covering it was the Guardian newspaper, and we went back to them and said, look, you know, you guys love that story so much. I can't get 2,000 students or 1,000 students there. 
but why don't I replace them with your readers? So we did what we was called the Guardian Greek Week for the Guardian. We took a few hundred Guardian readers and their staff into what became an amazing bash. And then next year we did six of them, the next the year after that, 20 of them for them, and eventually we did it for every newspaper in Bombay or another, or media, including the BBC, the Telegraph, so on and so forth. But that was entirely self-financed. We didn't have any more money. My second business, of course, you're right, that's where I learned the lesson that you have to be very, very careful with your investors because we had a lot of incredibly good investors, but we had one or two horrible ones. And it wasn't that they were bad human beings. It was just that they were ex-bankers who just had no idea about taking risk and doing something big. And as soon as we became successful, they became greedy, wanted to cash in. They, they made all the wrong choices. And as a result, they destroyed the business too, in my view, right? So... So you have to be incredibly careful because there is no point in getting a tool that gets you, and money is a tool if you want, that gets you to your next step if that tool has the genesis in it of destroying your Mm -hmm. end, right? And you see far too many businesses getting destroyed that way. I think this is why um, it's become increasingly important and actually really interesting how much coverage uh, venture capital firms get now in terms of how they treat their companies. You know, a few years ago, that wouldn't really be an issue. You just take money from whoever can offer it, and that's great. Whereas now, they're very consciously aware that founders are more, especially the impressive founders, the ones more likely to succeed, are far pickier, will do the research, and will spend as long interviewing the VCs as the VCs interview them for. So I think this has become a a, a much more well-known trend which is really important and there is a i can write i mean we we get together and write a book on this you guys are entrepreneurs too and you have your own stories i find it one of the most important issues that entrepreneurs need to be aware of and i find it sometimes amazing to see that people are who have put so much thought into all the details of building a business how have they not put enough thought into what can destroy that business and and I can name five, six, seven businesses right now that have been destroyed by having the wrong shareholder base. And their entrepreneurs are incredibly unhappy about the decisions they made at the time. Uh, you probably know some of the ones too. And it's a big issue. I mean, look, we never took any money from any VC, full stop, because we thought structurally their challenge. Still to this day. To this day. Babylon never took a penny from any... The only VC we took money from were a couple of our good friends who were setting up their own VC too. And they were entrepreneurs and we thought that, but we took nothing, tiny amount of money. But they were lovely, lovely people and we wanted them in our board. Uh, But outside that, we never took money from any VC because it's a challenge, right? So we think as an entrepreneur, they have lots of money. But look at them. How much do they have? They have 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, even the biggest, 500, 600 million. So how much can they put into you? 5 million? 3 million? 2 million? Right? Eventually, what's going to happen is that, and maybe in one or two companies, they can follow up with a 20 million thing. But the system is written in a very different way. So especially if you go to the Valley, it's incredibly well-structured, right? So you have an idea, I give you seed money. You have 18 months, I give you, to build a product, I give you VC money. 18 months to rush to revenue so I can get access to growth capital, right? Because that's where all the money sits. That's where the billion pound funds plus are, right? So these VCs are an intermediary step into that. For that, they take a very big chunk of your business up front, 
And then they rush you to get to that revenue so that they can bring in the capital they don't have. You might as well just go to that capital right up front. So in Babylon, we always, right from day one, we went to multi-billion dollar sources of capital. Now, it was a challenge to persuade them to come early. But if you can do that, and you could do with some, then you have a source of capital that is there for you with the long term without having the luggage of these people. And by the way, small money often is small minds, right? I mean, it's also like, remember, if you put 20 million into something and you can return 10 times that, that's a big return for you, right? And if you want to build a multi-billion dollar business, tens of billions of dollars of business, you want to avoid being cut too short. Anyways, we are distracted. On you can only really jump that, that hoop and go straight to growth capital if you've got a track record like yeah. you have. I think I was going to say something similar, but I think it's two things. I think it's a track record and the size of the idea. Yeah. I think, I think you're right on the size of the idea. Look, my first business, Circle, I had no track record. I, again, only raised money from one VC. Big mistake. The only thing that destroyed that business was that one we see in my view. But I went to hedge funds because at the time hedge funds were a source of capital. And hedge funds managers were entrepreneurs. They were people who had built big businesses. And we raised over 200 million pounds over a six, seven year period in the middle of financial crisis between 2008 to 2012, right? 2000 when I left, 2011, right? And, and we raised it from wonderful people. And I think the point is exactly right. Big minds get attracted to big ideas that are executable. And if you could do that, people will trust you. But you need to do the right thing. Now, that doesn't mean every VC is wrong. I mean, especially if you go to the Valley, there are some VCs who are ex-entrepreneurs. But I, in general, have a problem with venture capital who has never built a business in their life. You know what I mean? Ex-Goldman bankers or ex-bankers who go and become a VC. So by the virtue that you become a banker, you've decided that you want to manage your personal risk. You want a safe job. You want to do a safe thing. You want to get your safe bonus at the end of the year, so on and so forth. And you know this because you were one. I, I know this because so I was. I was surrounded by... right to surround, say what you want about it. Right. Yeah. But, but when you're an entrepreneur, you're in the business of taking risks, right? Calculated risk, better risks. And now you're persuading people whose DNA is almost against that to go with you. People who never went and did did this because they wanted the safe job. Even the people who joined the VC right up front from school, right? They thought, okay, this VC has a big name, it has a big salary. So I think those VCs who have a rule that says, unless you're an entrepreneur, you don't get a job here. They're fundamentally different. We've got a few of them, Anderson Harowitz being one, uh, in the Valley, who are incredibly valuable because they didn't get an entrepreneur and mentor them, help them teach them, da-da-da. Mm-hmm. We, unfortunately, are short of those in Europe. And the ones that we have in Europe sometimes are fronted by an entrepreneur. They actually have a management consultant or a banker or all those guys doing really the work. Uh, so I think it's a problem. If I wasn't, listen, if I wasn't an entrepreneur doing what I'm doing, which I love, I think one of the areas which require entrepreneurs is that whole financing of enterprises business that is done really badly, And I think that needs disruption in a very big way too. 
Well, we could talk about this for a minute because I think it's a really interesting topic. You know, I actually, I was just doing a, a presentation touching on this, on the disruption of finance and uh, to this exact topic. The traditional way you have to uh, raise funds at the moment, you know, you started off with a bank manager, then you have your angels, and then you have your VCs, and then you have private equity. But actually, you know, now crowdfunding is an extremely interesting way to source uh, a way of avoiding the VCs at that stage anyway. And then, of course, if you want lots of capital, there's the whole ICO market at the moment. So I was wondering what your thoughts were on ICOs, not as a discussion that we can have on blockchain or cryptocurrency, but specifically to your point on alternative sources of financing, whether you think that's interesting, if that might be something that Avalon could pursue in the future. So the answer is I don't know enough about it, right? And the world is full of people who talk a lot about things they know very little about. And and I'm a scientist at core, so I'm not a big believer in talking about things I don't know about. And I just don't know enough about ICOs. I've read all the usual stuff that one has read, but you can know a lot of things you think about something, but you know very little, and I know very little. So unfortunately, it's an area I can't can't make a judgment or, or, or have an opinion on. But what I do know is that the world is washed with money. The sources of money are everywhere. I am blessed enough to know a lot of very rich people who often are and most struggle, so what do I do with my money? And big funds who are thinking, how do I deploy my capital productively? So I don't buy it when there is a problem of getting capital. The problem often is that we haven't figured out a way for that capital to come to you efficiently and in the right way possible. And that may happen in the future of Babylon too. We may fail to raise the right capital at the right terms because we're incredibly picky also on our terms, right? Because it's easy to raise the capital. It's much more difficult to raise the capital in the right term as... As you'd have learned from the circle. As I learned from Zuckerberg, as you can all witness in the Uber right now, right? That story is being played in public, where the terms of the way they raise the capital has now become the strangling part for them raising more capital right now. We keep saying the words, the circle, and yet to our listeners, you know, they might not have uh, had the opportunity to stay on your private healthcare business. So let's talk about it. And I know that you... Uh, have already set yourself up as someone who's quite open to being candid about your experience with the circle. So it seems to me like that could potentially be the most valuable 10 or 15 minutes of this interview for people to listen to and learn some really hardcore lessons. So let's start with the start. Who did you raise your money from with the circle and why do you think it went bad? And obviously using names, not using names, whatever you're comfortable with. So look, we had a brilliant idea in Circle, which is the vast majority of our hospital blocks in Britain are 50 years old, in the private sector are 70 years old in the public sector at the time, right? And if we went and built a brand new set of hospitals, get Norman Foster to design them, get hoteliers to serve them, and fundamentally change the experience of going to a hospital, get doctors and nurses to co-own them and therefore have a stake in them to co-manage them, we can change your experience of going to a hospital. And that was a very simple, very appealing, and we've worked out the economics of it. Because even on the real estate side, even if Circle failed, those assets were incredibly valuable to anybody, right, to pick them up in any town and city, right? And then from operations side, if you are asking doctors and nurses to co-own the hospitals rather than do what they always do, which is moan about the management, that they don't know what, 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 what is happening. So the article was very powerful, and we raised uh, half a billion pounds of money 
we for the idea uh, from two people in 2007, we just got the two people wrong. We raised it from Lehman Brothers and Royal Bank of Scotland, RBS. And they did a ginormous amount of due diligence on us. We just failed to do any due diligence on them. And they failed. And then we got into a place where we had to raise... 20 million here, 30 million there every few months. Can I just stop you there so we can just understand this? So you raised, you were aiming to raise half a billion pounds from Lehman Brothers and Royal Bank of Scotland, but that was in 2008, was it not? Yes, 2007. 2007. So, I mean, presumably what you're trying to say is that you, you had it all lined up, but then they crashed. So you then had they to do, crashed. You, so you had to do a complete alternative. Correct. Okay, Correct. understood. Sorry. Uh, you're much more articulate than I am. You're absolutely right. That's exactly right. I just thought, you know, and, some of uh, our listeners might not be quite as aware of what happened in no, 2007. No, no, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah, those are the two worst choices you could make in the world. Correct. But this is it about being an entrepreneur, Right. You would not have thought in 2007, Lehman Brothers, the fourth largest investment bank in the world, would be a bad choice to make. These things you know with the benefit of hindsight, right? And that happens all the time. In a business, you make your choices based on what you think are the right decisions at the time. And done is better than perfect. And and it's really easy for somebody to come back to you six months later with the benefit of hindsight, ah, if you only did that. It's like in this interview, after we listen to it, I'm sure I'm going to say, ah, if I only had said that, or you say if I only asked that. It's easy, right? Anybody can do that. Anybody could have chosen to buy Bitcoin back in 2011, 2012, right? We didn't, right? So we then had to raise money from hedge funds because they were a big source of capital. They were highly entrepreneurial. People we met were very good. And we had almost six out of the top 10 hedge funds in Europe invested in Circle with significant amount of capital. But we took a small amount of money from a VC. Uh, We knew them. They were ex-colleagues of mine at uh, Goldman. I wouldn't name any name. It's irrelevant. Uh, My point is the type rather than the organization. But their investment in Circle was their largest investment. And and by nature, they have a lot of time. So these uh, hedge fund guys were very busy trading all the time, humongous quantities of capital. These VCs guys were deploying a few tens of millions or hundreds of millions at the time, or that whole thing. but, But they had a huge amount of time. So what happens? They went to all those investors and said, let me, we have this skill of managing this company. Let me manage uh, circle people for you. So all of a sudden, even though people didn't give them that mandate, all of a sudden they become a lot more valuable than their little uh, thing or a lot more powerful. And then they uh, basically made one wrong choice after another. Right. I mean, which VC was it? I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't name them because it's just irrelevant, Fair right? Enough. I mean, it's one of the one of the major VCs. Yeah, but I uh, guess your but point is this is the typical is VC. The type. Yeah, is the type, Understood. right? So they had the time. The partner was a big investment for him. He had to kind of make it uh, work. At the time, things were not. This one was an organization that was growing. Da da. And then they asked for the business to go public because they needed to show liquidity or whatever it was, right? And then when it went public, they played the same politics they would play in an investment bank. They made sure that they line up all the boards in their own image. So I end up in an entrepreneurial business that is growing two, three times in revenue a year with a bunch of ex-bankers, lawyers, a failed property person, right, in my board. 
I mean, who comes and sits in a public company's board, especially at that size, for fifty to sixty thousand pounds of annual salary, a hundred thousand pounds of annual salary, right? retired people who didn't do so well, so they still now need to work. I mean, I didn't get the great entrepreneurs who wanted to sit on the boards, right, at that level. And then all of a sudden, we went from doubling, tripling our revenue every year to zero growth, not one pound. I remember I did this deal where one of the biggest businesses in Abu Dhabi offered to pay one and a half billion pounds, dollars, sorry, to grow circle across Middle East, and Africa, the brand, right? In partnership with them, they will put all the capital in. We manage it. We get 25% of it. I mean, it was just the sweetest deal. And I take it to the board, and they say, this is a distraction. I mean, honestly, right? <laughs> I mean, you and I laugh, but this guy was more serious, right? So by which time, by the way, that VC guys has played so many games to dilute me left, right, center, because, you know, I mean, if you own five, six, seven, eight percent, any one, two percent you get, you look at it as two more percent. And I'm getting diluted to a point that I had very little. And some of you sit back and say, what the heck am I doing this for? Right? What is the point? Because in every time we disagreed, they have a blocking vote, because when you bring a board in, you basically give control of the business you created into the hands of those who didn't. Most famously, Jobs did this, right? And I thought, look, time for us to go. But I guess time has shown that within 18 months of me leaving the company or two years, it was then sold for a fraction of the price that we were building it for. So now, with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to say that we were right. But at the time, you could have argued that they might have been, or they thought they were right. In my view, though, the big lesson is this. Entrepreneurs who dream big, and there are entrepreneurs who just copycat somebody else's idea, right? I mean, that you call it entrepreneur. I don't call it being creative. I just call it, you know, it's a copycat. Yeah, you just build something that is like somebody else's that has built in America. You copy it here, you build it, right? So that's fine, but it's not, there's no creativity in there. So, but if you're a creative, you're trying to create something out of scratch that has never been done before, by definition, you're going for a dream. And you need to make sure that people who are on that journey with you, they're believers in that dream. And they want to implement that dream. And it can't be a dream, by the way, because a dream is something that often can't come true. You know, there are three kinds of problems in the world, right? There is the very simple ones. You should avoid that. I mean, nobody needs another pizza delivery company, right? I mean, uh, there is the impossible ones. Those are for dreamers. You should avoid those two. But there are problems that are incredibly hard, but you can get them. You can solve that, right? Sending a spaceship to the, to the atmosphere and bringing it back to the same place physically is highly possible. It's just the mechanics of it are were very difficult. So it took SpaceX 10 years to figure it out, right? But it was always figured out, right? The maths on that was possible, right? The mechanics were possible. I, I think this is what we're doing in Babylon, trying to do something incredibly hard. And that's what we were trying to do in Circle. And we could have done it there too. There are other businesses that, by the way, have been set up in Middle East, for instance, by people we knew in Circle of the idea that, okay, if I take a billion pounds of money, I can go and build hospitals across Middle East to do these things or across Africa or Central. Can you give us some um, some actual practical idea? What was the Circle valued at at its peak and where is it at now? Oh, it was. Roughly. I mean, this is, this is both public... At its peak when I was there, it was worth around 200 million. 
well, at its peak was a bit higher than that, but let's just say 200 million. And it was sold for, I think, about 30 million, 30p a share. I mean, I I took it to 250 pence, uh, £2.50 a share, and it was sold at 30p a share. So we're talking about 90% value destruction, and that's two to three years later. <laughs> By then, it would have been... If we continued down that trajectory, it would have gone up much, much higher than the 250. I mean, it was very early on in our journey that we were cut, right? Actually, I just want to like, understand a little bit more about how you actually felt about the circle. Now you're willing to talk about it. You know, the day you left, what was that day like? What, like, Just give us an idea of leaving a company that you started, how that actually feels for you. And what about like the days and weeks after that emotionally? So my wife, after I left Circle... Because remember, it was, it's not easy. You created something, you're leaving not just a circle, but a family of a few thousand people who believed in you, right? I mean, I used to go to do town hall meetings in my hospitals, and there was no room for anybody to stand. My staff, my employees, my colleagues would run around. We, we, we were friends, right? We would see each other. And uh, and and uh, I separated part with, with this board who they wanted me gone and I wanted them gone and they they had majority so I had to go so it wasn't easy but my wife a week into it kind of told me that she just can't figure me out it's as if it never happened I was completely focused now onto my next thing onto Babylon and to me it's about I think what Malcolm Gladwell calls desirable difficulties early in life, right? As an entrepreneur, as, as a refugee, I had to leave my family behind. I had to leave everything, right? And you learn that you can build again, right? You can move on again and you can create again. And, and there is really very little point in life, in anything, on negativity, right? Sitting back and saying, oh, if only that happened, or if only I had that, or if only that person was not, that's just nonsense, right? Life is what it is. I actually put all of that energy to demonstrate, and I gave myself two years to build a bigger business. And actually, on the 18th month anniversary of Babylon, it was a bigger business in valuation Mm -hmm. than Circle was at the time after that. And that's what you do. You just move on, right? Uh, So I had zero regrets I was upset for my friend, but actually a lot of those colleagues now are working here. I mean, I think, I mean, the number of ex-circle colleagues who contacted us wanting to join us, unfortunately, we didn't have room for all of them. But my employee number one, two, three were all from Circle. That was actually something I was going to ask, but I wasn't sure if you were able to share. But that um, that does seem like the sensible approach if you've already worked with brilliant people. You, I guess the benefit of that is you know exactly who you'd leave behind and who you take with you on your next venture. I think as an entrepreneur, you collect people. There are people in Babylon I worked with for 10, 12, 13 years. I have a reputation out there that I'm very difficult to work with, but I'm actually incredibly easy to work with for people who are brilliant because I don't make compromises. I don't go, hey, good enough is enough, right? But for people that actually are brilliant at their work, I'm really easy because I'm at heart, I'm an academic. I'm a huge believer that you leave brilliant people alone to do brilliant work. So as a result, people who work with me always wanted to kind of come back and and we were, we managed to get all of them back. So fascinating. We've actually delved so deeply into those parts of the stories. So we're going to miss the other bits that make you human. So just to humanize uh, this academic doctor, scientific, founder, entrepreneur, board leading, investor, 
opinionated human being, I want to know what a typical day looks like for you. What is a typical day? What time do you wake up? What time do you go to sleep? What do you do in between? This is the bit that I always find fascinating when I read other people's because I think, what kind of superhuman are they? Like, they wake up at five. By the time I wake up, they've done everything I do. Because you wake up at nine, crawl into the office. (laughs) Almost, almost. So I wake up around seven, whatever it is, right? Quarter past seven, little two seven. In my age, you have to do five, 10, 20 minutes of moving, of of just exercising, just just to wake up, right? Because joints start hurting and, you know what I mean? You're not as flexible. So I do a little bit of exercise, not much. And then that gives me the energy to get up. And then I go see my kids, have breakfast with them, try to do that every day I'm at home, uh, get them off to school. And then I walk to the office. I live on the, it's half an hour away from the office. So I every day walk in. On the way in, it's a great transition through the park where I can start making phone calls and talk to people. I get to the office, I do a laugh. I do very little here. If you think about it, I am the least valuable person here because I have expertise of nothing, right? So my job is to facilitate other people to be the best at their job. So whatever that takes, meeting them, resolving their problems, hiring new people, bringing new people in, bringing new customers, partners. I also travel a lot. Look, the last three weeks I covered 60,000 kilometers, right? Uh, I'm on the plane quite a lot uh, because uh, we are very clear about Babylon is going to be a global business. And we need to cover a lot of parts of the globe to find where we go and who are the right partners for us. So there's no such thing as a typical day. But that's what makes it amazing. It's, it's a privilege. I mean, you guys are entrepreneurs. Imagine somebody says, here is your dream, your big dream, that it's going to make a change to humanity. I'm going to give you the money so you can put the resource together to make that dream work. Our job is to make sure we don't F it off, right? <laughs> we just have to make sure we deliver on that promise, right? It's, it's a huge privilege, isn't it? Well, Rich is one step ahead of you because he does actually wake up at five. So on that note, we will uh, come back to the end of the day or I guess in between. What do you actually do to unwind? Are you a fan of meditation? Do you do anything relaxing? Do you go to the cinema? Do you listen to classical music? You must have some things that aren't Babylon related that you do for yourself. I read a lot. Since, since I was a child, I loved losing myself from reading. So any time I find, I sneak somewhere and I read a lot. So what are you reading at the moment? Um, actually, right now I'm reading, uh, I'm reading Sapient. And oh, all of this Beautiful books. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because in life, because I'm, I just think life is never really as simple as here is the one best thing ever. Everything has, has things. I loved... There are so many biographies I love. I mean, I think there are so many amazing, amazing people out there. Okay, well, let's talk about you. How would you describe yourself? Listen, I mean, I am the product of my environment, right? I was brought up in a very warm human family. My father was very left-wing. So we have massive social values in our family. I'm non-materialistic. I have one wife, one family, one house, one car. My car is 10 years old, you know. I don't believe in holiday homes and this and that. So I actually don't need much. And we were brought up to have human values. I mean, my father always used to say, my mother always used to say, that at the end you take one thing away with you and that's your reputation. Everything else is left behind, right? And it's your kids have to live with that reputation, right? And it's the values that you instill in your kids that are most important. And when I look at my wife, I married her 
because I fell in love with her. But when I met her parents, I fell in love with them because I could just see my wife in them, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we leave for our children is who we are. So to me, it's really, really simple. It's just be who you are, who your parents and your society around you made you who you are. Stay true to that. Uh, Do your best and you'll do just fine. I mean, honestly, we are in the top 1% of the most privileged people on the planet. I mean, if we don't enjoy ourselves, when I see people, middle-class professionals, entrepreneurs who moan to me, I just lose respect for them. Because just I just came from south of India, right? Uh, I tell you, I don't think I saw a single person in this long journey who are in the same social class as me. I mean, the privileges I got, everything from living in a democracy to security to safety to the space, to everything, 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 the privileges my kid have, right? Honestly, for me to complain, it's the height of egotistical selfishness. And for anybody in my position in life to complain, I just find it ridiculous. I guess coming on to the very final section, which is about lessons and mistakes and actually, you know, touching on how you view the world. That was a really meaningful lesson for our listeners to consider, you know, even the struggle on the journey when people say no to you. And, you know, I do this exercise with my fiance, which is hard actually after a while, but we wake up, we try and think of something that we're thankful for, but it can't be each other and it can't be that I woke up. But like sometimes we genuinely, you know, I can't think of anything right now. We'll go to the bathroom. It's like running water, but genuinely... I mean, it's insane. I can turn my tap on, I can get running water. Obviously, a privilege just being in London. So we always start there when we're discussing this, you know, like forget everything else, forget what her job is, my job is. We're in London and there's the NHS. And like, that's mind-blowing privilege just as a starting point. And if you can start your day thinking about those things, then VC is telling you no and you're running out of money and you're having to fire people. I mean, those are like, you know, really, they, 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 they... end up feeling very low down on a long list of problems that a human being can have. Listen, even if you lose everything, right? When I lived on social benefit and we had very, very little money, we were as happy as I am today, right? I mean, it's not as if like... It's so bad. One of the big advantages you gain when you, were, when you lose it all is you actually figure out it's not that bad. <laughs> and therefore, you have very little fears, right? So when, when I lost Circle all over again, it wasn't that bad. It actually unleashed me to do something new. And, and if I lose it again, kind of um, in my early 50s, hopefully I have a few more decades to go, right? I mean, so, and I learn so much more every time, so you could do even more, even bigger, even better. So I just think this fear of losing is the thing that makes all of us so miserable, as opposed to the zeal of all the billions of things we haven't done yet. One of the questions you and I talked about before we started this is where are we in the journey with Babylon? We are at point note. Right. (laughs) Really. I mean, we really want to do with your healthcare what Google did with your information, make it accessible, affordable, put it in the hands of everybody, but comprehensively, everything from your mental health one day to your long term disease management, all done by artificial intelligence, augmented by human beings. Right. This is a long, long journey. I think healthcare is something that we can make a utility for everybody, just like tap water. You turn it on, it's there. In a couple of months' time, for 80% of primary care diseases, we've already done it there, right? We already have a product 
which diagnose you as accurately as any doctor for 80% of primary care disease. You just move that on a few years, mm-hmm. and what else can it do, right? We will eventually make healthcare a utility. But then there is so many other problems in the world that hasn't been fixed, from education to democracy to information, so many. What's the best piece of advice you've been given? You've obviously had a chance to hear from some amazing people. Is that on a personal level you've gotten some advice or is it from one of these amazing influential people that you've, you've quoted along the way in our journey? Obviously, you've mentioned you love reading. So where's the best advice you've picked up? There are many, but there is, as you say, the first thing that comes to my mind is I had lunch with Rupert Murdoch once, and I asked him as entrepreneurs of two different generations. It was about five, six years ago. It was when I was at Circle. And I asked him if there was one single thing he could pass on to the next generation of entrepreneurs. What was his biggest lesson he learned? And he said something that always stayed with me. And he said, look, if 95% of people on the planet or businesses are competing on a one-year budget. They have a one-year budget. They have to deliver it. They work on it. That's their horizon. There's four or five percent who work on three to five-year plans. If you have a 10 to 15-year plan, there is no one. You're on your own. So when Murdoch decided to put satellites on the sky, there was really no one out there. It was just him, right? And it almost took him to bankruptcy. But once he managed to do it, he had a monopoly. That, to me, was a great piece of advice, which is go for the very long term where you have... In what we do in Babylon, always everybody asks me, who is Babylon's competition? And the truth is, in the breadth and the width of what we do, there is no one. No one. Everybody's doing a little piece. Why? Because they got a one-year or a three-year business plan or an 18 months so they get to the next round of financing, whatever it is. But we have a 10-year plan. And if I can finance, if I can put the resource behind that tenure, by the time we're done, there's no one there. Okay, so wrapping up right now, I'm sad to say, this has been awesome for both of us. What's the most exciting innovation in the world right now that isn't Babylon? Oh, I think we're doing amazing stuff on human genomes and on gene editing. I think we're doing great stuff on artificial intelligence. I think we're doing really cool stuff on transportations, right? I think... I will be shocked if it's going to take us, when you look at these rockets that can go to the space and come back and land exactly in the same place, it doesn't take a genius to figure out the next time you leave London and you land in Sydney will be that way, right? By the time they get their act together. Which should so, definitely help your schedule. Right. <laughs> so I think there are many, many amazing things that are happening. Look, people say human knowledge is doubling every 18 months, two years. What does that mean? That means everything we've created, the entire history of human being, we are learning almost as much in the next two to three years. And then we're learning all of that again in the two, three years after that. And all of that. law on humanity. Exactly. And on human knowledge, right? And what I find incredible is how many of us spend all of our time worrying about this stuff that we learned in the past rather than focusing about the two to three years of the future that will reinvent everything from scratch. Because if you move 10 years forward, what we know then or have then will be 90% of everything we will have right from now to then, right? This whatever we got now will be only 10%. And all our geniusness, all our management skill, everybody's thoughts is going through how do I manage this 10% and grow this 10% rather than how do I invent the 90% of the next 10 years. So it's boundless 
the amazing stuff that are being created right now. Boundless, synthetic biology. Just, just take a look and see what's happening in that field. Okay, final question. I want to know what you think the future of healthcare looks like. I, I think a consumer will open up their Alexa or their mobile phone or whoever their means of talking is. They get almost all the healthcare, all their diagnosis will be done artificially. They will talk to a doctor for confirmation or for prescription or for regulatory reasons. They will have a machine that will then keep them through the rehabilitation program. If they have a long-term disease, all that will be done for you with your machine, when to take your pill, where is your diabetes is to manage, if you need health assessment, if you need coaching, if you need uh, monitoring, if you need predicting your future, all of that will be done by artificial intelligence. And I just described to you what Babylon will be doing in the next two to three years. You go beyond that. Our genes will be edited, our cells will be manipulated, our intelligence will be enhanced, our physics will be empowered by people who are doing stuff on robotics, for instance. I think my grandchildren will not recognize the healthcare we had in the same way that those who sought information from a library only 20 years ago would not have recognized what Google would have done to information. I think healthcare will be fundamentally re-engineered and transformed in the next 10 to 20 years. Dr. Ali Parsa, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. It was such a kindness of you to talk to me. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. We created specially built machines and we hired teams to locate inside the warehouse to be able to access the CDs and type in all the information about the record, the artist, the song title, etc. Extract a fingerprint, which is what Shazam uses to identify music, replace the CDs back on the shelf. That's how we created that first fingerprint library. That was D. Raj Mukherjee, the co-founder of one of the world's biggest and most successful apps of all time, with over one billion downloads. Of course, I'm talking about everyone's favourite music discovery app, Shazam. Shazam has now been sold to Apple for a reported $400 million, but he takes us back to the early days, where he shares the hilarious stories of how they came up with the technology and the bits that went wrong along the way. So tune in, or you'll miss out. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes or Spotify. Just search for Secret Leaders. You can also check out our website at secretleaders.com for show notes and behind the scenes of each interview. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. This episode was hosted by Dan Murray, produced by me, Rich Martell, edited by Harry Morton at Lower Street Media, and if you're hearing this, that's probably thanks to Jennifer Osman, our marketing whiz from Canada.